0: This is Daniel Fagella and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. We've covered a lot of use cases in heavy industry over the years. We've talked about the manufacture of almost everything. We've had experts from Rolls-Royce to General Electric and beyond around what it looks like to apply AI on the manufacturing floor. We speak today about what it looks like to service those products once they're out in the world. This is a topic that we hinted at in our last interview with GE. And we go deep in this particular episode with Chris McDonald, who is the head of AI and analytics at PTC. PTC is a multi-billion dollar software firm focused on the service operations industry. And Chris speaks with us this week about the adoption journey for folks in service operations. Imagine we have a product, maybe it's something very large, maybe it's something a little bit smaller. We push it out to the field, some client or customer is using it, and we, the makers of this product, are responsible for staying on top of it, making sure our clients are happy, making sure they're getting as much value out of the product as possible, and also making sure we can learn from the data that spins out of that product so that we can continue to improve our other products moving forward. This is its own life cycle. This is its own set of considerations. And while there's many commonalities, Chris talks a lot about, ensuring the quality of data, working together as a team. There are also some unique elements to this particular life cycle of something that is made and then shipped off and put under someone else's control for us to still monitor and improve. For those of you who are making smart products, this might be a fun episode to see a little bit of where the future of your industry is headed. And for those of you in any other industry, I think it'll be fun to learn about the successful adoption journey Of companies in this particular space. This episode is brought to you by PTC. To learn more about Emerge Media, stick around to the end of this episode. Without further ado, let's fly into this episode. This is Chris McDonald, again, Head of AI and Analytics at PTC, here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Chris, I'm glad we're able to have you with us on the program. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Dan. I'm happy to be here.
0: Cool. Well, we've got a ton to cover, and we're speaking at a bit of a high level about a sector and space that you're quite familiar with. When it comes to getting AI projects right, strategy often sort of has to play a role. And I know that you have some particularly firm opinions around what it looks like to align data strategy to business strategy. What do you think is most important for executives to understand about that process?
1: Yeah, I think it really comes back to, if you're familiar with practical data scientists, right? A data scientist spends a lot of time sort of, repeating this notion of framing the business question or framing the analytics problem, right? And really that comes down to an overall strategy of what are you trying to accomplish? How do I model data to represent that business problem or circumstance? And then how do you wanna leverage logic or different types of analytics to get insights that actually drive that action? So it's very much, what does it mean to align data strategy to business strategy? So in the case of a, a service executive, right? We know that the most expensive thing in running a service business, right, and why a lot of executives want to have a connected product strategy is this notion that you sell a customer a product and a service contract, or even sell that as a product as a service for that matter. That product goes down. It's critical to the customer's operation, right, and it's a reactive service cycle. So you have to send someone out there to get that customer back up and running. They have downtime, right, their operation's not running. And the most expensive possible thing you could do is that machine is down, you send someone there, they have the wrong parts, and they have to then come back, right? Leading to lower customer satisfaction, an even longer window to get the repair and get the machine back to a level of uptime that is satisfactory under the contract. So that's the worst possible scenario, right? And of course, it's easy for an executive to say, I wanna have a proactive strategy. I wanna proactively service my equipment so I don't have to experience that. I wanna make sure that I'm providing proactive maintenance and service, aligned with my customer's operational schedule, ideally when they're scheduling downtime, how can I have a service strategy that aligns that operational window? How can I allow them to have self-service? How can I give them insight into their products and what they need to do so they can even do it themselves? All those factors come into it, but the question remains, how does your data that you have support that strategy? Right? How do I, do you have your assets connected? Are they giving telemetry? Right, that, that helps us understand the behavior or the voice of the product that we can infer, you know, a level of well-being with that equipment and how we can interject with that equipment. All of that is part of aligning a data strategy. So if I take even say predictive maintenance as a use case in general, whether that's predictive maintenance from a maintenance team in a manufacturing plant or from a service provider of, of a piece of equipment or an OEM, right? There's this concept of data availability that we run into right? It's, it's often one of the biggest concerns in our firsthand engagements, working with customers on predictive maintenance, right? You need to have a sufficient amount of data from monitoring a piece of equipment, right? Over a, steer, a historical period of time, but you also need a history of some sort of adverse action, right? Or event that usually comes from a maintenance system or a service system, right? And you need to be able to bring those two things together, to create a sufficient data model, right? And that's not actually a technical challenge. That has to be driven through business sponsorship, right? There needs to be a you know someone saying that our data is a critical asset to understand our service or our operation strategy. that we need to be able to align our monitoring data to our you know systems where events or outcomes are tracked. because ultimately it's not just that availability, right? but you need to have a, a data quality as well to it, right? In the case of a service technician you know sometimes he might be in there tracking something that he's doing right and the old sort of you know fat finger adage right he could be inputting something into the system or some sort of event that that leads to poor data quality right so how do we have a level of governance or assurance of data quality or an executive sponsorship to drive quality data collection going on there right because ultimately you either collect raw data That is fundamentally of quality or you have to find ways to pre-process it to do outlier detection you know a number of those other means but at the end of the day you need a quality available you know data structure and it needs to be sufficient right you need to be able to find meaningful patterns in that so there needs to be enough adverse events and there needs to be and it's not a hard and fast number per se but there needs to be enough coverage of expected types of events that result in some sort of failure or outcome variable you're trying to predict.
0: Got it. And, and there's a number of factors here that you're bringing up that I think will immediately make sense for someone who is a services business leader. You know, they're talking about pre- preventing those unplanned downtime. Of course, you know what a horrendous cost that is. What a horrendous loss of face to the customer that could be under different circumstances. That's going to click for them a lot discerning and detecting which of our data sources are clean off the get, which are going to need pre-processing, how to identify outliers. That's probably not going to be in the C-suite where that happens. So when it comes to aligning data strategy and business strategy, like you said, executive sponsorship, absolutely. Our experience is a lot of this really has to start at the top. Executive AI fluency is the name of the game. You might argue that's why we're in business actually because getting smart up there is is a big, big deal to make the stuff on the ground happen. But talk a bit about how much does the exec need to know about the technicals of AI versus what do they need to understand conceptually to get the right people in the room? Because it sounds to me like aligning these strategies is going to involve getting those folks that know the machines, getting those folks that know the data streams under the same tent with that exec. How do those folks come together?
1: So I think on the executive level, there's enough fluency needed where you have to understand that it's not just an overall arching strategy. I want service optimization, but I think you have to get down to the level, and this is not a technical level in my opinion, right it's It's the basic question of I want an executive to be able to articulate in a program what they want to predict, right? They don't necessarily have to know the the quality of the data. They have to know that data is important, business outcomes are important, and things need to come together to a set of questions that we want to answer proactively, right? So I, I think there's a level of detail, like wouldn't it be great if my service managers could identify? the top 10 pieces of equipment that are likely to to fail in this given week window or based upon a a geography or metric where, uh, you know, service technicians are available in this area and they can be alerted to to failures, but that sort of, do they need to know, like, exactly how they're going to get there, exactly how the data is going to come together? Of course not, but they need to know, I have a business strategy, there are things in the case of predictive analytics that I'd like to predict, and here's how the ability to do so would drive, you know, certain KPIs or business implications that would help my strategy. Yeah. I think that's a level that's not technical. No, no, but it's, it certainly shows a level of understanding, and that there is going to be technical work and sponsorship needed to drive those things.
0: That's going to undergird it. Yeah, we think about it more as like a conceptual grasp for the most part, right? You don't yes. need to. You don't need to build a support vector machine on the weekend for fun in order <laughs> to to serve that executive role and there's kind of two elements of this. I'd love to get at your sense of the balance. We really consider them to be different. You might have kind of a, a different take on this. There's sort of the, hey, I'm an exec. I've got a Twitter feed. I, you know, I get emails every now and again. I go to events. I've seen individual use cases. I can say, hmm, we really should be doing more of this predictive this and such and such. We really should be doing more of this cool stuff over here. These both seem viable and valuable. That's sort of like, sniper style, immediate use case identification. And yeah. then there is sort of what we refer to as kind of a transformation vision where what we want to become is actually AI informed. So those use cases are not just band-aids for today because AI is great today. It's sort of building of capabilities. What do you encourage execs to to do to maybe ha- have a bit of both or, or how, do you, how do you see them as the same or different?
1: In an ideal world, I'd start with the latter, right? Here's this overall overarching strategy. I want to become AI, like, what do, what do you call it? Data-driven or AI-informed? Sure, sure, all, sure.
0: Yeah. I
1: want to have a data-driven understanding. I want to be able to leverage AI to my business benefit. It's not about me becoming, of the day, PTC, we have this phrase of, you know, our whole notion, our, our company motto is digital transforms physical, right? But our our customers are not in the business of being digital. We are digital first because we're a software company. At the end of the day, in the case of a plane, we want to help our customers create a digital footprint of that plane. We don't expect them to be plane software companies. We want them to build the best planes in the world, right? We want to help them do that. So being an AI-driven company of understanding, I want to have AI-driven insights to be able to optimize my business and then taking that approach of, now that I know that, Here's some top business priorities, right? I want to go shoot after the sniper method, right? I know this is really important, right? I know this is a big business implication for me. Let me let me put some fuel on the fire, even as an executive. Let me maybe let me get some vendors in here, maybe get some other executives sure. to go after this, create some inertia around that top priority. But ideally, it's gotta be under that umbrella and and some sort of maybe evolving strategy Definitely. for driven insights, but That sort of, I have an overarching strategy, I have a drive for my business to be more data-driven, to have proactive insights with my AI strategy, and then I have a sniper approach where these different use cases fall into it, right? Because I think with that, you can start to get to a point of, okay, I'm snipering in on, say, a predictive maintenance type use case or predictive service, right? But I also want that executive to be able to go to the next level, just a little bit, and that is, what are you trying to predict and within when? Like, so if I ask an executive, I want to do predictive maintenance, right? Well, the next question is, okay, but if I can predict that something's gonna fail, does it help to know that it's gonna fail within an hour? Is that enough time for you to do anything about it? Really, right? So you, you wanna to get to that next you know, thing where that executive is willing to bring in, say, a service manager or even an experienced service technician to start having the conversations of, maybe I need to understand remaining useful life. Maybe I need to understand, mm-hmm. you know, when something's gonna fail in the next two days or three days, right? Maybe we need to gather together to have some of the more technical conversations with better business sponsorship framing to say, hey, I wanna be able to understand when our equipment's gonna fail within a week, right? Go try to model the data, try to get it that way, and come back to me to see what we can do. That's a really powerful. I have an overall strategy. I'm um, sniping for those key use cases. And I'm willing to go to that next level to help frame the analytics question that gets my technical teams moving and shows that I'm invested in knowing a little bit about what they have to do in the realities of the world. That's a powerful AI-driven executive.
0: Big time. Yeah. I mean, and and again, I think some execs think, oh, I got to go back and get one of those certifications from MIT or something. Well, not really. Ideally, you get enough (laughs) of a big level vision. And frankly, those the time in that room like you just articulated with the the, the folks that are technicians, with the data scientists, to really yes. hash out what are we measuring and how, that's the school of hard knocks right there. And th- and yeah. that's it's much better than taking a swing at a project, closing your eyes, hoping it turns out like IT and coming back to it three months later. Yes. You know, number one, that's not going to succeed. But number two, you're not gonna learn nearly as much as the way that you just articulated, Chris. So I think that's something that leaders should be jotting down. Well um, and if you go, ahead. go to the next
1: level, like if you say to yourself, okay, an executive can do those sets of things, well then you put together say a prototype right maybe it's before it goes into production you're not using it but you, you're just early on this journey you have the strategy you say i want to go after predictive service predictive maintenance and you get your team together at a vendor or whoever right and they come up with something right and you're sitting down in the room then well now suddenly you want to measure roi right and you can start being ready for a conversation of you know take i'm going to use predictive maintenance again but the model needs good. to have a good roi right well there's two components of that Yeah, there's model performance. That's going to be technical. That's things like confusion matrix, right? Area under the curve, et cetera. But there's also cost revenue associated with various aspects of model performance, right? So a a false positive in predictive maintenance or quality translates into cost to perform an additional inspection or reprocess a part or replace a part earlier than necessary, right? A false negative right, may result in a failure in the field, which impacts something like warranty costs or customer satisfaction, penalties, et cetera. So maximizing performance of a model sounds technical, but when you put that model into production, it has very real business and literally numbers associated with it. So oftentimes maximizing performance of a model is important, but over-optimizing it can be just as costly in terms yeah. of enough, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's these major say if you, if this business technical translation, when it carries forward in the right identification of a use case, the right sponsorship at the right level to bring the right vendors and the right people in the company there, but also evaluating the ROI of a prototype that you've invested in and the real life practical use of it, that level of understanding can start to really hit the right spot there. When you start to be, have the willingness to say, okay, I don't understand what RO so like, what, you know, yeah. area curve or confusion matrix is. I mean, it's called a confusion matrix for God's sakes. Right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, but I, if I can have someone explain to me the real life costs of what these terms mean, then I have a meaningful understanding of the ROI, right? And I can start to make business decisions to say, don't over optimize this. I understand the cost and benefits of a good enough model. Let's put that into production. Yeah,
0: yeah. So when can you crawl, walk, run versus when do you need something that's astronomically higher performing before you even get started? We're going to get actually directly into the business KPI side of things because I know for you today we're really walking people through the journey of what you've seen other services leaders go through when it's done well. And yes. number two, I know is going to be the business KPIs. I know you you had some some topics we were talking off Mike around sort of data quality and other considerations for getting started with strategy. Is there anything else that you want to chip in there before we fly into KPIs?
1: Yeah. So I think it's. Under, so again, just to reiterate, the data yeah, bill yeah. it's it's sort of having an historical period where you have the monitoring data, think sensor data, along with the tracking of the adverse events. Know that you have to bring those together to create a data model, right? That ultimately will be used to learn to create a predictive model, right? So, it, and ultimately, what is a predictive model, right? You're learning from historical data, right? You're building a basis. And then you, when you operationalize that model, you're saying, given a set of events presently, what is the result going to be in the future, right? So you have some sort of way of understanding that given this set of events, a time window that you're going to be able to pull a meaningful understanding of the future probabilistically together, yep, right? Yep. So, and then in terms of data quality, I think the notion is, is again, that, that garbage in garbage out principle, right? So if you have, you know, I use the example of the service technician, the fat fingers, being aware of additional cleanup that is necessary and and understanding that there's this data quality needs, in my opinion, needs to be a first order of consideration for the enterprise, right? So there is never enough emphasis put across an organization on data quality and the (laughs) importance of it and what it means for different areas. So a good CIO, a good chief data officer, a good chief analytics officer in conjunction with business leaders need to be having conversations on a daily, weekly basis on what data quality means to their parts of the organization, whether it's a service technician, whatever it may be. And then again, sufficiency. I think it's really important for when you're that executive sniping, right? And picking those use cases, there's a level of sufficiency when it comes to predictive analytics. So people always tend to pick an asset that is most important and therefore has been over-engineered and over-serviced not to fail, right? So there's this fallacy of, The thing that never (laughs) fails is going to be the best to predict for failure and that may or may not be true but in order to derive a pattern one two or three events is not a pattern right you know there's no hard and fast number but there has to be a sufficient amount of the, the adverse events or the positive events the outcome or dependent variable that you are trying to predict and you need to model data to bring together enough to derive a pattern Right, And there's certain strategies like oversampling and all that kind of stuff, but you need a sufficiency of the problem in the historical past to sufficiently model a predictive analytics model to predict the future.
0: Yeah. And... There's not much to worry about for sufficiency, if quality-wise, we're not even in the right ballpark in the first place, right? So, that's um, exactly yeah. It, yes. so, so, can we check the quality box, and then we can ask the question: Great, which of these could we even stand on? Which of these might even right. have value inside of them? So that's that's a nice way of thinking about order.
1: I'll summarize sufficiency, right? It's that like I use this sort of phrasing, right? Ideally, adverse events should have enough coverage, right? that the expected types of situations that result in failure, right? So five to yeah. 10 samples per type of situation should be enough. Now there's no, again, no hard and fast. But yep. the yep. problem is that oftentimes these situations are never known up front, right? So in practice, we might be looking for a hundred plus failures over a fleet of similar assets, right? And then another consideration is that if your assets, like I said, are quite good and don't fail, it's going to take a really long time. To collect enough failures. And that's why big data storage data lakes are really important to enable a true enterprise predictive maintenance strategy. You want to store a lot of data for those assets that rarely fail.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's not like Amazon where we sell two million pairs of rain boots every day and, and we we yes. you know the volume's not the problem. It's in this case, maybe it is. And unless we've we've got it going far enough yes. back, there's nothing to predict in the damn first place. So And this takes us into sort of the KPIs we want to measure. You touch on this lightly. You brought up a point that we very much advocate for here, which is that when you're thinking about the, we we sometimes refer to the needles to move. So what are the needles we're going to move? We talked to vendors, Chris, one year, three years later, two years after that, you've been at this for a long time. And the way that they measure success for customer experience in banking or for whatever, it's like, it's different every time you talk to them because you get more nuanced perspective on it, right? And you you get to understand, ah. which of those can we actually measure and influence? Well, we were going after this, we can't really influence. So this is a real art and science. And you had talked about, let's have the subject matter experts and the data scientists in the room with the business stakeholdership to to grasp that. But there's so much to consider here. When it comes to deciding on those KPIs, what's the executive advice that you would give folks?
1: Yeah. So I think to your point, there's sometimes a danger in ever ever evolving KPIs too, right? So there's a notion of just general business analytics, right, are riddled with bias to start with, right? People and executives, let's be clear, I might have been guilty of it too at the time of my life, we're going to pick, you know, analysis and numbers and things to measure by that make us and our people look good. Yeah, right. And when you're really becoming and evolving into a data oriented organization, you may come up or you may hone in on a KPI that is a subset or related to an initial KPI, but you try not to get rid of it. You always want to remind yourself of the lineage of how we came to this KPI and what it meant. So I would say KPIs can evolve, but they should never be erased, right, to some extent. So if if I'm trying to understand, I want to improve profitability in my service business, right? Okay, well, what does that actually mean? You're not going to build a model to predict profitability, right? You're going to build a model to say, I want to reduce the cost of service. I want to have, I want to reduce reactive dispatches. I want to make sure that the right people are in the right place with the right parts ahead of time. So I might have a service and parts strategy. I might have a service technician deployment dispatch strategy based upon actions and insights. And you might start measuring things aligned with that. How many times did my service technician get called and he had the right parts with him the first time? So a first time fix rate, right? Might be a KPI, right? But you have to be able to marry that back up to the profitability, right? There is a way to do that as so long as that original KPI didn't somehow disappear. I'm trying to improve profitability. One of the ways I'm trying to do that is to improve my first time fix rate. Right. My first time fixed rate is now 90 percent versus 70 percent. What's the cost associated with that? How did that affect my profitability? Right. It might just be a secondary or tertiary calculation or remind yourself of initial KPI. Right. So it's just a little legwork up front on the ops side of things. But all of that being said, there's technical execution ops. Right, finding the KPIs that drive a service manager in a service business that are actionable, that speak to consumption, too. Hey, we've gone, we've leveraged this AI-driven umbrella, these use cases. What does it mean that your people actually took advantage of the insights from this work? And that by driving these insights, being able to make better service decisions, be able to make better, even on-site, you know, deployment decisions by being able to look at telemetry data to understand it in a contextualized application. How did that fix or reduce the amount of time they had to be on site? Or how many times was our customer able to fix the issues themselves with a remote call from us, with us never having to be on site. So first-time fixed rates of a remote visit, first-time fixed rates of an on-site visit, all of those things become a subset of metrics that inform that larger KPI of profitability.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I'm picking up a little bit of what you're putting down. I'm going to try to nutshell and then have you maybe add some nuance to what I'm finding here across what you've got. So like you said, sometimes we have an overall Thing we're trying to optimize, you know profitability is outlandishly vague, but okay, let's just go ahead and say that's where we're going. What nests underneath that is sort of something that you're you're leading with. And there's a few things that pop to mind. Number one, you know what you just started rattling off these different potential metrics, that actually comes from a lot of experience with customers. So some of the what could we measure comes from, well, I've seen this before, and I kind of have some ideas about what to measure. the other yeah. the other parts of what to measure might come from someone with a perspective on the data. Maybe a data scientist or someone familiar close to the process who might already know, what metrics am I already paying attention to? Hey, I'm the one managing how well this performs already. What do I look at? Maybe I already have some ideas. There almost seems like underneath our meta goal, there's these kind of nested things we could look at. Some come from experience, some come from someone who's touching the process, touching the data. Mm -hmm is the goal to just kind of collect a number of those potential KPI ideas and then talk with business leadership about, hey, boss, which one do we want to go with? Or what's the process to distill them? Because we probably won't land on 20. We can track well. We might have three or four. Yeah. What are your thoughts?
1: You start by gathering the 20 possible things out there, right? And then before it even goes to an executive, I always say, start with the experienced service manager in the, in the case of service, you know, the service manager or the experienced service technician, right? So why I say that is, okay, an experienced service technician that's been doing it a long time has loyalty, you know, to the company, they've been there, they have some sort of pride, right? And that they, they probably get a great deal of satisfaction for solving a customer's problem, right? That kind of person usually knows what they have to do. To not interfere with their customers, right? They have experience yeah. on how they can work with a machine in a way that doesn't that that drives customer satisfaction. And especially when we're talking like heavy industrial equipment or medical devices, these these service technicians are 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 frankly very highly paid, valuable assets in many cases, right? You're not the guy fixing a, a blood urinalysis machine, right, is a very smart engineer. Right? Yep,
0: yep. So, specialized. Right?
1: he's specialized right so he knows more than we do at the end of the day right so always start with what how would you measure what are the types of information you know how would that affect your ability to do what you've done so well for so long right and how does that affect the customer satisfaction or ability to relate to our brand in a better way right bring that with the service manager saying okay i have you know tom experienced tom over here i have a junior technician over here How do I want to replicate or how do I provide the insights that in some way takes his experience and provides him insights to upskill him faster to make him make the inherited decisions like Tom does and then collectively how can I run the business that I'm responsible for the area geography or types of equipment that I'm servicing what are my KPIs combine those together to get the list of 20 down to 10 and then drive it with the service leader to say how, what what are these are the levers that are really going to pull or make a huge difference across the business?
0: Ah, okay. And do you advocate that sort of pairing the data and subject matter expert person together as kind of like if if you had it your way in any given project, would you say that would be so, part of the way we build these everything? If
1: I had it my way, I would say the biggest miss actually across the board is an executives or even a data science company or your own internal data science team their unwillingness to to spend time with the tactical, most experienced person either on the platform, whether that's a continuous improvement expert or a maintenance engineer, or in the case of a service technician. I can tell you why one of the earlier times that I fell in love with applying data science in the industrial space was working with a very experienced data scientist that I've known for many years and sitting on a factory floor. This company had just spent tens of millions of dollars you know, sensorizing this huge manufacturing plant. And so they wanted to be able to predict a certain type of operational event that led to less than ideal quality. So they, they censored up everything, they tried to model everything. And, you know, they're explaining over days to us, all this different types of data they have. And the data scientist's first question who worked for us was, can I talk to the guy, who's your longest running operations manager? Like, just let me, can I, who's been here for 20 years, right? And he goes around and follows him on a maintenance event. And he says, "Okay, what did you just notice? You just replaced something that wasn't part of what you were doing. And the guy said, well, I heard something. I heard something that indicated something. And all they needed to have a sensor for failure for this event was a microphone. So they implemented a microphone. They had their dependent burial that they've been looking for. They didn't have to spend tens of millions of dollars. We're talking a couple hundred bucks. And they had an answer to a multi-million dollar problem right so don't underestimate the power of listening to a domain or subject expert. In fact, if any at the end of the day, all of these advanced analytics initiatives, the tighter collaboration you have between software engineers, data scientists and subject matter experts, that's always going to be the home run.
0: We call it connective tissue and. Certainly in your world, it's no less important than it is in every other damn industry that we cover over here. And you're putting a a nail in that coffin big time for the listeners, which I certainly appreciate. So this rolls us into the last part of sort of the journey. So when you watch people do this well, they get their data strategy aligned and there's some fluency there. They come together and discern KPIs. Ultimately, this has to enable action. And this is kind of part of thinking through strategy is, all right, what are the actions this is going to enable? So we're in this the C-suite, the boardroom, we're mapping this stuff out. We've got. A strategy that feels strong. We've got analytics that feels strong. And now we've got to think about boots on the ground. What's the impact? How do you guide people through that part of the process?
1: Think about consumption right off the bat. So who is going to be, you, you build this strategy, you bring this data together, you build a model, say you can operationalize a model. Now, all these things I'm saying are not easy, right? Let's be clear. They, everything that we're talking about makes it easier because you get some of the business hurdles, get some of the politics out of the way make sure that you're aligned to ROI and business sense. But at the end of the day, the rubber hits the road. Let's say you can do these things, right? Well, you're in a really good spot. Now's not the time to waste it, right? Now's the time to make sure that you're understanding who is the, if I'm in the manufacturing plant, who's the operator that's gonna be looking at this? Or who's the service manager that's going to be looking at these insights? Because at the end of the day, the difference between showing a value that is from a sensor, the temperature is this, versus, this is going to fail because of these factors well to many people it just looks like another number on a screen right so they have to be able to understand the results of an underlying predictive model and that means it needs to be summarized that insight needs to be summarized in a meaningful and actionable fashion for the end users that we can safely assume are not analytics experts right and the industrial space, it's, you can almost be guaranteed it's not an analytics yeah, yeah. right? So the space that we serve, it really has to be meaningful to that domain expert. And that's where just a little bit of thought about asking that person. And maybe that's not even the expert guy, right? Asking anyone who's going to be able to use these, doing a little bit of UI testing, doesn't have to be full fledged software company UI testing, but saying, Hey, if I show you this dashboard that you're looking at, and I show you this prediction, what do you do with that? How do you interpret it? How can I train you? What could I show you to make that clear, right? And by the way, what actions can you take or can't take based on this? Doing that stuff as part of the prototyping, thinking about end consumption, goes a long way before you roll something out to realize that no one understands what they're looking at, because that's the most defeat- self-defeating thing you can do.
0: Yeah, yeah, when you've sunk all the dollars in. So let's talk a little bit about preventing that circumstance. We're talking about Kind of executive strategy and transformation at a high level today. Strategy, KPIs, thinking about consumption right off the get. All this is happening in in a strategic executive kind of level. So when we do start picking those projects that are going to fit under this umbrella, which as you had said, ideally is how this operates, is we don't just go sniping first. We kind of think about our transformation. It almost feels like part of the consideration on maybe even what projects we pick is which of these do we think will actually be able to get any adoption at all? Maybe some of them any kind of output would be like a whole new interface, a whole new workflow. And it just feels like, let's not start there, you know? Yep. So does does this factor into where we might want to go first?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of times like you see at,
0: like at least in my experience,
1: I found that honestly the best place to pilot something is where e- somehow executives tend to know, even at the, the what people might think of, like some of the oldest been around for centuries, industrial companies making things forever. They tend to have these what they call pilot plants, right? Or or pilot lines or private service areas, right? Where these innovative thinkers are aligned to this product line or this fleet. And they've always been the people that take on new technologies with some level of success somehow. They tend to be that more organically data-driven way that if you do it here, this is where you prove it out. They're always ahead of everyone. And there's something to that, right? It means that this group has a way of operating. That the company in some ways might wish the rest of the company did, but they're willing to at least work with these new technologies to give you a sense to iterate a bit, to be a little more agile and say and be the proving ground because they want to be the first to win. They want to be the operator. They want to be the service manager who's on the cutting edge. That's not a bad thing. right. That's someone who is willing to work with you, who's willing to take some risks, and you can sort of figure it out, iron out the details in a more innovative environment.
0: Yeah. So part of, well, you know, we had the the global head of AI at IBM on the program not that long ago talking about how, honestly, a lot of where it makes sense to drive innovation, we got to consider data and, and a number yes. of those factors. But do we have a place where enthusiasm really lives and breathes and where we think someone's yes. going to be willing to push this through? You know, like you said, maybe it's a bit of a selfish motive around their career, but so long as it's within the bounds of bettering the business as well, we kind of need somebody with that motive, right? Imposing it top down, like, oh, Steve hates change, but he's in this function that we think is going to transform. Let's have him spend his next 18 months doing this. Maybe that's not the best way to do it. Sounds like you're doubling down on some of that as well. Maybe I'll demystify
1: a a classic sales tactic, right? Is that any one of our good salespeople is gonna find that person, and they're gonna try to make their career better by them bringing in us better, right? Yeah, and it yeah. is it is absolutely selfish on both sides. But I gotta tell you, more often than not, it works.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I mean, I appreciate the frankness. I really appreciate. It. We talk to vendors, and ultimately, the way we see it, Chris, you know, we're in the middle of buyers and sellers all the time. Change isn't gonna happen unless you know dollars change hands, and ultimately. Dollar change chance best when everybody's informed and the value's clear and they're excited about it. And being able to find somebody that can actually be excited is, is very critical. And, find- the, and, the good, yeah. and the good news is now is that
1: in modern software times, we're in a subscription business, that if it doesn't work out, none of us are going to benefit. So it's not like we can really pull one on you anyway.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah. Incentives are aligned in many regards, right? Exactly. So there's a lot to be said of that too. Final little point here on enabling action. So, you know, you mentioned the idea of kind of having these pilot lines or what have you, that often being a good Petri dish to begin with. When it comes to thinking about actions and consumption upfront, is there any guidance that you have around kind of mock-ups or how to envision that actual end result, like what consumption would look like? When this gets thought through in a proper way where it actually hits reality and and it does work the way we thought, what steps happen? Because you've seen this go right and wrong, I'm sure.
1: So I think of it as an application, right? Whether that application is a you know an iPad, a dashboard in a factory, a laptop, an AR experience, whatever it may be, think in terms of an application. If I bring this application with these insights live, who uses it? Start there. So who is using the application? Then ask those people. If I could tell you this in this amount of time, what would you do with it or would you be able to do with it? And how much time or leeway would you need to be able to do it in a practical manner that officially is proactive instead of reactive, right? So that interviewing process, and yes, I think a mock-up helps, to be honest. So it doesn't yeah. have to be, it doesn't have to be a full-blown like, you know, like Figma or even like I'm talking like it can be a simple thing of like, here's a visual of an application you probably because let's be honest, if you're in a factory, sometimes the most effective. Like what I would look at as a software engineer from a UI perspective, and you then you go into a factory and you're wondering like what? How is this the most used application? But it is. Yeah. It's not up to me to judge it. If that works for them, if it looks like an Excel spreadsheet on a bigger screen, but it, they know how to use it and consume it, I'm all in. Yep. That's a successful UI, in my opinion. If they are using it to drive change in their business, that's it. Won't it. Much, right. So yeah, whatever that is, mock that up in the way that it's realistically going to be. So you have an understanding of how you're putting information in front of someone and how, what the boundaries are to change and make that more consumable are UI designer for that. You, anyone can do it. Yeah. Draw it out, you know, get it out in front of someone. We'll get it.
0: Overthinking is common here, right? Like we're building a new startup from scratch when ideally we actually just want to be augmenting and leveling up an existing process because especially if it's an early project, the less change, the better. The more it looks exactly oh, like yeah. what they're doing already, the better. Well,
1: and You start introducing an entire new software, oh, an no, entire no. visualization into something. The best thing you can do with analytics is another number that means something different in a context that already exists.
0: That might have been the most quotable soundbite that we had in this. That's a that's a nice tight one that I think people could take <laughs> home as well. That's good, and that's a that's a solid topic to end us on. We covered a lot of ground today in the transformation that has to happen in the C suite to bring AI to life. But Chris, I appreciate you sharing your expertise and being with us on the show. My pleasure. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Chris for being able to join us and a big thank you to you, our listener, for sticking around here all the way through to the end of this episode. I hope that Chris's multi-step approach was a useful way of framing the adoption journey here. We really did think pretty deliberately before the beginning of this interview about what would be the right way to kind of paint the picture of adoption. I thought we ended up with a pretty good structure here for how the process works out. And I hope that for all of you tuned in, this was a useful one in terms of your own lessons learned. As I mentioned before, this episode was brought to you by PTC. To learn more about how you can reach Emerge's global executive audience, whether through sponsored content, thought leadership, demand generation, and more, you can learn more at emerj.com ad1. That's A-D like advertise, and then the number one, emerj.com ad1. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I look forward to catching you next time here on the AI and Business Podcast.